0: This is Purple Radio On Demand. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to this holidays edition of the Current Affairs podcast with Will and Ben. Hello, Ben. Hello, Will. Once again, we are continuing with our interview series, but this time we are not interviewing a member of parliament. No, what? No, no. What? No. I'll tell you who we're interviewing. It's not a member of parliament. Today, we are delighted to welcome... Will Smith and Chris Rock to resolve their differences live right. for the first time. <laughs> no, I'm joking. They're not, they're not here. But who we do have... I hope show... this gets
1: uploaded in a timely fashion, otherwise that joke will be so dead. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I'll, get, I'll get this out
0: quickly. But anyway, no, no. Who we do have, though, is even better than that, because we are delighted to welcome the Whitehall editor for the Financial Times, uh, Mr. Sebastian Payne. Sebastian, like our previous guest, is... is an alumnus of Durham University, he is the Whitehall editor of the Financial Times. At the age of thirty-three, Ben, what do you make of that?
1: Well, uh, there's a lot, a lot there to unpack. Um, as always, brilliant to have a Durham alumnus on, on the show. But most importantly, and he's not just a financial financial not Times editor of um, Whitehall editor, Whitehall, Whitehall editor, but he is, but he is the ex station manager. Of Purple Radio, uh, I know. For the for the for, for, he said he graduated in 2010. Um, so the, for, for the first time in 12 years, his his voice will be on the airwaves of Durham, as it as it once was. Um, so returning, as it, as I can't remember went. what I
0: was doing in 2010. I was in
1: um, year four. So I was well, in year five then. Oh, uh, fine. Doing, doing doesn't bear thinking about. Still in short um,
0: trousers, as it was. <laughs> <laughs> but,
1: uh, no, it'd be interesting to hear his thoughts. Obviously. Um, yeah, there's a lot no, no, It was so, a fantastic yeah. interview. He
0: he has provided us with um, a new sort of journalistic insight. We 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 mm. play, sort of it's nice to not not that interviewing members of Parliament isn't an amazing privilege and a fantastic experience, but it's nice to bring the changes a bit and get someone from the media offering Absolutely. their views. So it's sit really back, and relax Especially- and enjoy. Hello, everyone. This is the interview segment of the podcast, and I am delighted to welcome the Whitehall editor for the Financial Times, uh, Mr. Sebastian Payne. Uh, Sebastian, how are you this afternoon?
2: I'm very well, thanks, Will, and thanks for having me. It's great to be back on Purple Radio after a good decade of being away.
0: Yes, yes, no, it's good to have you back. Um, Okay, well, without any further ado, I think we'll kick off with some questions. So, Ben, do you want to start?
1: Yes. Um, Sebastian, it's fantastic to have um, someone who used to go to Durham onto the podcast. Um, We've been having a lot of them recently. And what we've asked all of them is sort of tell us about your time at Durham. Was there anything you particularly enjoyed? You mentioned that you were a station manager at Purple Radio and talking to us. Perhaps you'd like to sort of tell some of our listeners about how how that was.
2: Well, I was one of those rare things at Durham as someone who was a local that I grew up in Gateshead and went to Um, school in Newcastle just 40 minutes down the road but unlike many local people who go to Durham um, I actually lived in college I was at Van Mildert for three very happy years and in pretty much my first year I got involved with Purple Radio that I'd always been very interested in music and radio and so at the Freshers' Fair I signed up for it and I did a variety of radio programs including one called An Hour of Pain Uh, there was Stop Making Sense with Pain as well just various um, plays on the name. Mm -hmm. and uh, got to the end of my first year and the current to use a favourite Durham word, that was running Purple Radio at that point, had really come to the end of their period there. They were all graduating and somebody said, well, do you want to take over? So I said, why not? And so I did. And so I went through a sort of semi-election and became station manager of Purple Radio in 2008 and ran the station for a year. And we had our ups and downs, including a notable fine from PRS for not playing any um, um, fees for playing music on this radio for about five years. And we had to sort solve that and um, the station also flooded but on the plus side we managed to redecorate it we managed to get it into a good shape and get some good presents along so that were my happiest memories from Durham my least happy ones are probably my degree that I did computer science didn't really enjoy it from about the third week in and uh, battled my way through and I did get a degree in the end but uh, I realized quite early on it wasn't something I was particularly good at.
0: Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I mean, obviously your career is vastly different from m- what most people who studied um, computer science have gone on to do. So could you perhaps tell us about sort of following on from Durham, how you've ended up where you are today? So, yes,
2: yeah, so from about the, uh, so from about The end of my first year onwards, I realized that I was not that good at computer science. There were much better people than me. So I focused very much on the extracurricular activities at Durham, including Purple Radio and Palatinate. And I got involved in my JCRE in in the Union Society as well. And when I graduated from Durham in 2010, I did work experience at The Guardian in London. And it was uh, a very interesting time. The Guardian was a very exciting place to be at their offices in King's Cross and I seemed to show some modicum of ability to do it and they all suggested you should go off to City University to do a postgrad degree which many people do. Um, so I ploughed a lot of savings into that, and did that for uh, the year after I graduated and I was fortunate enough to get a job at the Daily Telegraph at that point. And I'd done a lot of investigations. We'd worked with Julian Assange and WikiLeaks on the Guantanamo Bay project which was all about the inmates of Guantanamo obey who they were, what they were there for, and published a big expose in terms of what was going on there. And I was at the Telegraph for a year and a half, and then I joined the Spectator magazine in 2012 and uh, worked there in various roles, including online editor, worked on the Coffee House blog. I was a managing editor for a while. And in between that, I did a fellowship at the Washington Post, where I spent a good nine months uh, on the national desk there. And in 2016, I joined the Financial Times, and I was on the comment desk, a leader writer, and where I'm speaking to you now from the House of Parliament on the paper's fantastic political team as Whitehall editor. So there's a brief run-through of the past decade.
0: <laughs> well, thank you for that. Um, I mean, sort of moving on to the next section, we've, we've adopted this new thing on our show where we like to ask our guests sort of quite general, but, I mean, hopefully pertinent questions about uh, political and international political issues so to start, I'd, I'd like you to get your thoughts on do you think the current crop of politicians in Britain are less competent than um, every single generation that has preceded them? This is obviously in the context of, you know, the Prime Minister's behaviour around the party gate scandal, the lack of ability of the Labour Party seemingly to win uh, elections. Do you think that the current generation is worse than um say during the Thatcher years or any other time before now
2: well i think everyone has a tendency to look backwards and put extra Um, prominence on historical figures, uh, which is a natural thing in politics. So if you're even now in Westminster, if you look back on the Cambren years, people look at the the cabinet ministers and say that was a really good era. There were some big, serious people. And if you think of the names like William Hague, George Osborne, Theresa May, of course, they were substantial figures. And I think we have to be careful that we don't just look backwards and say that people were substantial because they're in the past. But I think politics certainly got a different sort of people who are in parliament at the moment. There's obviously a lot more people come here as professional politicians who've either been special advisors or worked in think tanks and come straight in to Westminster, which means they've got less, less quote unquote, real world experience in sort of business or uh, the public sector than in the past. But I think there are some good people in government at the moment. For example, Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, I think is widely seen in Westminster uh, as a very competent Chancellor of the Exchequer, even if his political judgment is not always absolutely on on the on the mark. Michael Gove, the Leveling Up Secretary, again a very competent cabinet minister. So you do get people there, and I can imagine in five, ten years' time, people will be looking back and saying, ah, "I remember the glory days of Rishi Sunak, Liz Truss, and Michael Gove," because it's that weird thing about your brain when you look backwards at things; they always appear better than they sort of do. But I think when you look at the parliamentary parties of Labour and the Conservatives, there is a wide Widespread view that they could be stronger and due to whether it's social media abuse, due to the money involved in going to politics, or just the level of scrutiny, you're maybe not getting the same level and um, competition of people going to politics than you would have done 20 or 30 years ago.
0: I mean, that, that's an that's, that's interesting take. I mean, with the party gate scandal, when we've spoken to Conservative members of Parliament quite ex- extensively about this. And a sort of common theme they came up with is that the the machine of Downing Street itself is um, inherently flawed and has sort of systemic issues that have been uh, present for quite a few years now. Do you think that that's part of the problem, that British institutions like Downing Street and the civil service, which have had their flaws exposed by recent events, do you think they are inherently flawed? And is that... um, Is that hindering the process of government in this country?
2: So I think there's no doubt that this structure of 10 Downing Street is not ideal, that if you go back to the middle of the 20th century, it was essentially the Prime Minister and tens of officials who supported his day-to-day work through secretaries, private secretaries, and um, senior civil servants. But it's now grown to a department of hundreds of people who uh, are trying to support all the different things the Prime Minister has to deal with. And the job of Prime Minister has changed hugely in the past 50 or 60 years. And it's clear the structures haven't kept up with That now it's obviously come to the fore because of Boris Johnson himself that he is someone who's a much more chairman-like prime minister who's good at campaigning, at messaging, but maybe less focused on the red boxes, the policy details, and making decisions that you have to do as prime minister, hundreds of decisions every single day. So following the departure of a whole bunch of number 10 aides earlier this year, they're trying to create this new office for the prime minister, which is meant to be a formal government department, which reflects many other Commonwealth countries who have a political structure similar to the UK, but they also have a formal office for the prime minister. And I think Boris Johnson or not, that is a good thing to do, to make sure the prime minister is actually able to do things because very famously when gordon brown moved over from the treasury to 10 downing street he suddenly found this power vacuum he'd been chancellor for 10 years had direct access to data to the levers of power to officials then it went into number 10 and there was nothing there that he'd tell people to do things and he'd ask for information and it just wouldn't appear so On balance, I think it is generally a good thing for the country to do. And you're essentially going to hive off half of the Cabinet office with all the economic and domestic secretariat responsibilities going into 10 Downing Street. But of course, you've got to be very careful to separate the personality from the structures. So even if you bring in this new office for the prime minister, there are still questions about this particular prime minister, how he operates, and whether it's him or whether it's the structures around him.
0: Yeah, I mean, do you you think this particular Prime Minister is going to uh, survive much longer? I mean, obviously, people are now being fined, or police are recommending that people be fined inside Downing Street. Do you think his days are numbered, or do you think he'll write the storm of this?
2: So Boris Johnson has personally likened himself to the song by Chumbawamba, "Top Thumping, which is he gets knocked down, he gets up again, you're never going to keep him down. And I think <laughs> throughout Boris Johnson's career, he's always been underestimated. He's been written off about four or five times when he was mayor of London. People said he was done after EU referendum. They said he was done. When he resigned from Theresa May's government, they said he was done and he keeps on coming back. So you shouldn't underestimate that simple fact that he has an amazing power to recover and get back into frontline politics." On the other hand, you know he's been Prime Minister for over two years now, and we've seen the flaws in how he operates. He is not a good manager of people uh, according to the civil servants I speak to. He's not good at chairing a meeting and doing many of the basic things Prime Ministers do. Uh, the Partygate scandal, we're about to come to the, the culmination of it, that uh, the first fines have gone out. There's going to be subsequent rounds of more fines, and it's still an open debate in Whitehall about whether the Prime Minister will get fined if he does, then I think he will face a great peril to his future because the Ukraine war has taken the pressure off him, uh, which was very high in in February time. But I think if he does receive a fine, then that is a prime minister who has broken the law and who has probably misled parliament Either one of those would be a resigning offence. And no matter what you say about Boris Johnson, there are still some basic laws of political gravity and they will kick in at some point. So I think for me, it really comes down to that fact. Is he personally fined or not? If he is, then I think he's in real trouble. If he's not, then he can probably ride this one out, probably fight the next election. And then that goes into a much wider question about where both parties are.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting you mentioned the next election, who, who, do you think that it is possible for uh, Labour to form a government? Because, I mean, Keir Starmer is perhaps, the circumstances are quite favourable for him at the moment, given the Partygate scandal. He seems to be performing relatively well at Prime Minister's questions. But I've always thought that there's the key problem that Labour faces, that it seems nigh impossible for them to win back Scotland from the SNP. And without Scotland, I struggle to see how they can... Form a majority. So, is there a possibility that Labour could form a government at any time in the near future? Well, the fact
2: is, if Labour wants a majority of one at the next election, they would have to gain 121 seats, which is probably beyond where the party is at in its campaigning machine. Maybe it will get there in the next two years, but at this moment in time, I think that's probably too high of a bar. But you've got to remember for for the Conservatives to leave power, all they have to do is lose their absolute majority because all the opposition parties will find a way of working together to get the Tories out. So if the Tories don't win an absolute majority or give and take about 10 seats with the Northern Ireland Democratic Unionist Party, then uh, Labour could find a way of getting in, but of course, this brings us back to the favourite message of the 2015 campaign, which was the coalition of chaos. And the Tories are already lining up to do this message at the next election. They're going to say to Liberal Democrat voters in the South, if you vote Lib Dem, you're going to get another independence referendum, another prospect of dividing the country. And I don't think they'll use the coalition of chaos slogan because it's now become a Twitter mean to take uh, the out of the Tories, essentially. But I think what they will do is. Paint that difference between the two that if you vote conservative, they will get on as they will describe it as the people's priorities. But on the other hand, uh, you know, the toys have been in power for 14 years, that is a long time. And the trick that Boris Johnson managed to play in 2019 was to make voters feel as if this was a new election, a new government with different priorities, and managed to totally disassociate themselves from what happened in 2010 to 2019, which is remarkable. But again, at some point, political ground will kick in and i think if the Tories do manage to slither back in in 2024 then the election after that in 2029 will be incredibly difficult
0: yeah well thank you for that i'd be i'd be inclined to agree um i think we're going to move on to ben's section now
1: yeah um and, and we're sort of we're, we're running out of time so i'll keep it brief i'll limit it sort of uh one or, one or two sort of big big picture questions but but something we've been covering over the last sort of couple of months, has been the ongoing uh, first crisis in Ukraine. It's now grown in sort of a full-blown war. But it's sort of exposed. And I think you touched a bit on it earlier in, in sort of how the Ukraine has sort of overshadowed failures in in, in the UK government. It's, it's sort of put a new light on Boris and his and his government. It's it's realigned the way in which I think we've operated in Europe. It was returning back to the sort of geopolitical days of the 20th century with NATO and and all that. But but it has also exposed that. W- Britain perhaps isn't doing as much domestically to support it as in sort of taking in uh, refugees. So in in your opinion, do you think the ongoing war has, has impacted Britain in the eyes of the world? And how do you see this sort of Tory idea of global Britain going forward from this crisis?
2: Well, global Britain is quite a bit like one nation conservative or Labour right wing that you can just paint absolutely anything onto it that you want to. It's completely meaningless as a, as a as a term because you can use or abuse it to make whatever point you want for the day. Uh, I think with regards to Ukraine, it's the first real foreign policy test we've had since the UK left the EU. And I think broadly... The government's got it right that we were obviously very early to call out Vladimir Putin in terms of his intentions, which were, again, all proven correct. The UK has donated more weapons, particularly the anti-tank end laws that have been very effective in destroying Russian convoys. Uh, We've led the um, charge on sanctions, although with some missteps along the way from the UK. So I think on the whole, the UK has stepped up to the plate for its first post-Brexit foreign policy test. But on the other hand, there have been some missteps. So I think Liz Truss, the foreign secretary, attended one of the EU foreign council uh, ministers meetings. And that was the sort of place you can imagine the UK ending at, which is the EU Plus one of Britain, not part of the bloc, but on the outside of it, and I think that would have been a good place to be. Unfortunately, the Prime Minister made some comments that seemed to draw an analogy between uh, Brexit and the Ukraine situation. That was unwise, and essentially got him disinvited from the uh, from the EU leaders' meeting. So. We're still struggling with the rhetoric, I would say, about how you place the UK in this—you situ- know—where the UK stands in Europe. But uh, in terms of global Britain, you know, this buccaneering trading future that has been talked about. Yes, we've struck a lot of trade deals. A lot of them are kind of rollover deals that just maintain trade as they were when we were members of the bloc. Australia is obviously the first big one that we've done that goes further. Joining the uh, CPTPP, that's the 11 Pacific countries trade block, that will be a big moment. So You can see the outlines of what global Britain is eventually going to be. But I think at the moment it's still just a slogan. And I think that it needs to be a much greater architecture behind it. And I think there are opportunities and Ukraine does show that, but it requires us to think just a bit more in the medium to longer term than just saying what sounds good for a domestic
1: audience absolutely um i know that's that's been really really interesting but um will, will do you have anything to add i'm just concerned about uh, time uh, so <laughs> i
0: mean, we've been uh just to quickly circle back there's one question i forgot to ask about the um sort of more westminster side of yeah. things which is your area of focus um again if the if the prime minister does not survive uh in some sort of the context of the ukraine as you say he's being he's been somewhat saved by the war, but if he does not survive, if he gets fined, for example, who would you um, say is his most likely successor? Who are the sort of top candidates? Well, obviously, before the spring statement, Rishi
2: Sunak was the uh, the 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 heir across the water. He was the the most likely successor to Boris Johnson, being seen as quite popular among Conservative MPs for a technocratic style, for his managerial competence, uh, and for his good public presentation. But ironically, all that's come somewhat unstuck during the spring statement, which tried yeah. to please too many people and didn't end up um, giving anyone uh, a, a shot of good feeling. The tax cutters in the Tory party didn't like it because didn't cut taxes far enough. Those concerned about the poorest in society didn't see there was enough in terms of spending in that as well. So I think Rishi Sunak really sort of damaged his standing over this as well. And if Boris Johnson was force to resign this year over the Partygate scandal or something else, you would have a cast of thousands trying to replace him. It would not just be Rishi Sunak, but you would have the Foreign Secretary Liz Truss, the Education Secretary Nadim Zahari, who's my dark horse to watch in all this, and I think he could prove a very interesting candidate. The health secretary, Sajid Javid, might also run. The chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, Tom Tuggenhall, has always said he's going to run. Steve Baker, the libertarian MP who leads the COVID recovery group, he would also run. Jeremy Hunt, the former health secretary and foreign secretary, he would also run too. So it would just go on and on and on. And the question really is going to be what person is best placed to fight and win the next election because at the end of the day that's what tories care about who is going to help them at the ballot box and at the moment they still think that person is still boris johnson and that's why he's still prime minister and only when that calculation changes will they seriously think about swapping him out for someone else
0: no i mean i wonder i wonder if there is another candidate in the conservative party that has a better uh, electoral appeal than boris johnson even at this stage um, uh, I, I sort of, I certainly can't think of one at the moment. Uh, maybe that will change if he gets fined, but do you think even if he gets fined, perhaps they the Tories, as you say, they're, they're most concerned about the sort of electability in the next election. So do you think perhaps even in that circumstance he will survive?
2: I think Ukraine has certainly changed the calculation among many Conservative MPs before the war began. It was our understanding at the FT that about 45 people had put letters of no confidence into the Prime Minister, and you need 54 to trigger a ballot in his position. And when you have that vote, you've then got to get another 180 MPs to vote against him. And I don't think the numbers were anywhere near that, even at the worst, the Partygate scandal. Although the general view in the parliamentary press gallery was once you reach a leadership vote, then that's it, because lots of people will come out the woodwork and as we saw with Theresa May in 2019 and 2018, even if you win a confidence vote, it starts the clock on counting down the end of your leadership. I think at this juncture, the numbers of no confidence letters have reduced. It's probably in the 30s now. More would go in if he is fine but would it be enough to trigger a vote? I, I just don't know at this stage so I think a lot of it will come down to May's local elections because that is an example of when the Tories will be tested at the ballot box over this whole issue. And so if the PM was fined in the weeks running up to May the 5th, The Labour Party would use this as an electoral weapon to say, you can send a message to Downing Street, send a message to the Prime Minister that you don't uh, agree with what he's saying on this and you're very unhappy about it. And in that case, then you could see some kind of formal challenge. But there's this sort of conception that the Tories are quite ruthless with getting their leaders. It actually takes them an awful long time to do it over many, many um, leadership contests. So they're not ruthless in the way some people think they are. And I think there's a very good chance that they actually and stumbling with Boris Johnson into the next election because the circumstances to remove him might not emerge at a time. And if you get to the end of this year, then you're on a year countdown really until the next election and at that point, changing leaders is a pretty risky prospect.
0: Yeah, well, I, I think that's very interesting. Thank you very much uh, for that. Is that, have you got anything to add, then?
1: No, no, I really enjoyed that. Thank you.
0: Well, in that case, Sebastian, thank you so much for giving us your time today. I think we've, sorry, we've overrun slightly catastrophically, but yeah, thank you so much for appearing on our show. Um, And I'm sure our listeners very much enjoyed uh, your interview. Great
1: to have you back on the air.
2: Great, stuff. Thanks for having me, guys. Cheers. Bye-bye. All right. Have a good day. Thank you very much.
0: And there you have it. The interview. Uh, thank you so much to Sebastian uh, for agreeing to be spoken to by us for a lot longer than we previously agreed. But he was very, very good in giving us so much time. We found his answers very interesting and insightful.
1: We hope uh, you did. What did you think, Ben? Um, absolutely. I just echoing what you said. Like the insight that this man, Sebastian's provided. You can. He's so well versed in, in what he talks about, particularly. Um, particularly in sort of that that, that idea of the red wall being broken down and, and future changes and who he backs to be the new prime minister a really really interesting discussion and one one I think we were both disappointed you know we couldn't have it up going on for longer um, so yeah, I hope yeah. I hope the listeners enjoyed that as much as we did.
0: We could have spoken to Sebastian for about three hours. Well, I, yeah, yeah, we'll have to get I him think, to yeah,
1: we, get him back into another, purple radio.
0: But maybe we'll have him back and do a do another do another overnight purple radio with him. Did you, did yeah. you talk about this? He didn't, but yeah. yeah. So and in he, in, he in our he email, we did a, a twenty
1: four hour. We did a twenty four hour. Yeah. Anyway, uh, anyway thank you very much year, for listening, actually.
0: guys. Tune in whenever we're on next. It's a bit sporadic, being the holidays. And without any further ado, goodbye.